You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of biblical theology today by finishing our examination of extra-biblical evidence that corroborates the Bible. We ended last time by looking at a few Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. Dr. Spencer, where do you want to begin today? I want to first refer to the discussion we had back in Session 7, where I pointed out that the New Testament is the best attested book from antiquity by a huge margin. We have extremely good manuscripts for every part, and that, combined with the science of textual criticism, which I also discussed in that session, allows us to have great confidence that we know what the original manuscripts said. Also, I want to lay to rest a notion that is unfortunately not uncommon today. What's that? It's the nonsensical view of some professing Christians that the New Testament does not have to be historically factual for the Christian faith to be meaningful. Some will say that it doesn't even matter if Jesus actually lived or not. All that matters is the good moral teaching that is credited to him. If you put that teaching into practice, then you're a Christian. But to claim that the good moral teachings of Jesus, or of some mythical figure called Jesus, are all that matter is to completely eviscerate the gospel message. The Christian faith is founded on historical fact. Let me quote the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15:14, he wrote that, quote, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith, end quote. In other words, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a real historical event, the Christian faith is useless, and you can extend this argument very easily. If the New Testament is not true in every detail, then our faith has no solid objective foundation. We're left with pure subjectivism. I I couldn't agree with you more. But, praise God, the reality is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He came to earth in the man Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, He lived a perfect life of obedience and willingly gave himself as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. And he was raised from the dead on the third day as foretold in the Bible. He then appeared to many people, and after he ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit down on the apostles, and they preached the good news of the forgiveness of sins in his name, which is called the gospel. Through that preaching, the Christian church was started and grew rapidly. And what was true then is still true today, unless and until we come to know the real historical Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are dead in our trespasses and sins and bound for eternal hell. But if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we're saved and bound for heaven. Although, as we discussed in sessions 12 through 16, That simple statement of faith is loaded with meaning, and we must guard against a false, easy type of faith. So what I want to do today is to provide a sampling of the extra-biblical evidence that we have that corroborates the New Testament. Okay, what would you like to examine first? I first want to note that Dr. Stephen Meyer in his video series, Is the Bible Reliable?, does a good job of presenting a significant amount of detailed evidence showing that the New Testament is historically accurate, For example, it gets the names of places and people just right, and we've noted before that getting details right is a significant sign of historical accuracy and is not as easy as one might suppose. Let me give just one example. Please do. In Romans 16, verse 23, which the Apostle Paul wrote from Corinth, 
he sent greetings from a man named Erastus, whom Paul said was, quote, the city's director of public works. Now, this is not some major figure in history, so it's quite surprising that an inscription was found on an old Roman road in Corinth that names him. F.F. Bruce, in his excellent but somewhat old book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable?, mentions this same inscription. That is pretty incredible to find such a minor figure from so long ago. It is incredible, and, and getting such a minor detail right is strong evidence of historical reliability. There are two other items that Meyer brings up in his video that I think it's worthwhile to mention, even though they're both disputed. They're both ossuaries, which are boxes the Jews used to rebury bones after the body had decayed. Now that sounds a bit macabre. You're right, it does. In any event, this process of digging up a grave and reburying the bones was only practiced for about 100 years, from roughly 20 B.C. to 70 A.D. One of the ossuaries was found in an official archaeological dig in 1990, so there's no question about its being authentic. The question is about whether or not the person named is the person from the Bible. The ossuary is very ornate, and the inscription when translated reads, Joseph, son of Caiaphas which many think is the high priest Caiaphas mentioned, for example, in Matthew 26 in connection with Jesus' trial. And that would be pretty incredible if true. And given the time period, the location, and the fact that it was such an ornate ossuary, it certainly seems probable. I agree. But the other ossuary is potentially even more incredible. It's a very simple one that came to light from the antiquities market, so no one knows for sure when or where it was found or by whom. But no one doubts that it's a first-century piece. The question is whether or not the entire inscription is from the first century or whether some of it is a modern forgery. The inscription reads, when translated, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And this is called the James Ossuary. If the entire inscription is legitimate, this would almost certainly be the ossuary for James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, because all three names are correct, the period is correct, and you wouldn't name a brother unless he was extremely prominent. The evidence for this inscription being entirely legitimate has gone back and forth over the years as different types of testing have been done. The most recent testing was in 2008 and seems to confirm that it's genuine. One thing is certain, if the inscription has been added by a modern forger, the person who did it was extremely good and very, very knowledgeable. So overall, I'd have to say I think it's most likely genuine. That would be amazing. But even if it turns out to be a forgery, we don't need to worry too much because we have a lot of other extra-biblical evidence to corroborate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who was crucified by the Romans and whose followers started the Christian church. We, we certainly do. In fact, I would say there is no serious basis for anyone to doubt the existence of Jesus Christ or the fact that he was crucified or the fact that his disciples said he was raised from the dead. For example, the Jewish-Roman historian Flavius Josephus, whom we've talked about before, mentions Jesus twice in his Antiquities, in books 18 and 20, and he also mentions John the Baptist in book 18. The Antiquities was written near the end of the first century AD, which is only about 60 years or so after the death of Christ. The account about Jesus in book 20 also mentions his brother James. It says that the high priest Ananus, quote, assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges, and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, unquote. Now, listening to that quote without being able to see the commas might be a bit confusing. James is called the brother of Jesus, and it is Jesus, we are told, who was called Christ. What about the other reference to Jesus? That one's a bit more problematic. 
We have several copies of it, and the most famous one has pretty clearly and regrettably been modified by Christians. It has Josephus, who was certainly not a believer, calling Jesus the Christ, which is not believable. However, in 1971, a 10th century Arabic version came to light, which still has the same basic material, but with a few key word changes. For example, instead of saying Jesus was the Christ, it says Jesus was believed to be the Christ. Since this version was in Arabic hands, there is no reason to suspect that it was modified to be a better evidence for Christianity. So most scholars think that it's genuine, and it still provides clear evidence for Jesus. Do we have other extra-biblical sources mentioning Jesus Christ? Absolutely. The Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus wrote a history of the reign of Emperor Nero in about 112 AD. And in that history, he notes that it was rumored that Nero himself started the Great Fire in Rome in 64 AD. And then he writes that in order to stop the rumor, Nero, quote, substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, from whom they got their name, had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a short time, only to break out afresh, not only in Judea, the home of the plague, but in Rome itself. Wow. Tacitus was clearly not a friend of Christians. He said that they were loathed for their vices and called Christianity a pernicious superstition and a a plague. That's pretty clear, all right, that he didn't think much of Christianity, but that makes this quote all the more valuable. I'm confident that he would not have wanted to provide evidence that would support Christianity, but I suppose that since he knew what had happened, he probably didn't think there would come a time when people would try to deny the basic facts. (laughs) Well, if you're right about that, he couldn't have been more wrong. But I guess he can be forgiven for not foreseeing the deep animosity of modern anti-Christian so-called scholars. Yeah, he certainly can be forgiven. The Great Fire of Rome and Nero's resulting persecution of Christians is also mentioned by Suetonius. And all of this is written within a hundred years of the crucifixion of Christ. So we're not talking about oral traditions being blown up into a legend. All right, what else do you have? F.F. Bruce, in the book I mentioned before, quotes from a letter written by a man named Mara Bar Serapion to his son, also named Serapion. The letter was written sometime after 73 AD, and although we don't know the exact date, most scholars think it was fairly soon thereafter. In any event, this man was in prison and wrote to his son to encourage him to pursue wisdom. In doing so, he mentions three wise men who were put to death, Socrates, Pythagoras, and, although he doesn't name him, Jesus. He wrote, quote, What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching which he had given, unquote. It seems clear that since this letter was written not long after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD, it's referring to Christ. Meyer also mentions this letter in his video. It sounds like this man was very modern. He viewed Jesus solely as a great philosopher. Yeah, that's true. But as with Tacitus, the fact that he carried no brief for Christianity makes his comments more valuable. They show us that the basic facts about the life, death, resurrection, and following of Christ were widely known. That's an important point. What do you want to present next? The next thing I want to mention is very important. Around 156 AD, a man named Justin Martyr wrote a defense of Christianity to the Roman Emperor Pius. F.F. Bruce notes a very important detail in this defense. 
Martyr wrote that, quote, The words, they pierced my hands and my feet, are a description of the nails that were fixed in his hands and his feet on the cross. And after he was crucified, those who crucified him cast lots for his garments and divided them among themselves. And that these things were so, you may learn from the acts which were recorded under Pontius Pilate. Notice this last statement. Martyr knew that there had been a record of these events made, which he calls the Acts, and that this record was available to the emperor. This is, again, clear evidence that what happened to Jesus was well known, and it is not credible to claim it was a legend that grew because this letter was written less than 130 years after Jesus' crucifixion, and it bears witness to the fact that there were written descriptions of what had happened that were available from the original time frame. Very interesting. What else do you have for us? I'd like to present just one more quote that makes it clear that even secular scholars who do not believe at all in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if they're being honest, find the New Testament to be a reliable presentation of history. In a book called Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament, published in 1963, the British academic Mr. Sherwin White, who very obviously does not believe in Christ, wrote the following about the book of Acts in the New Testament, quote, For Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. That is a rather strong statement. Are you done with the evidence that you want to present? Yes, I am. We could go on for a very long time talking about the evidence we have and the fact that we have so many things written so close to the time of the events they describe— We can clearly put to rest the different wrong ideas people have about Jesus of Nazareth. The idea, for example, that there is only a tiny core of truth in the New Testament and that the rest is legend that developed over time is simply preposterous and unbelievable. Sherwin White points out in the book I just mentioned that legends take time to develop and there simply was nowhere near enough time between the events and the written descriptions we have of them for a legend to develop. There is just so much more that could be said, but I again encourage those who are interested to look into some of the resources I've mentioned. But the bottom line is that there really is no evidence, none, that clearly demonstrates any part of the Bible to be an error, which should strike any reasonable person as a complete miracle, given the fact the Bible is over 2,000 years old and has had many serious enemies for that entire time. It simply could not be true unless the Bible is exactly what it claims to be the word of the sovereign Lord of the universe. The main reason people have for rejecting the Bible is very simple. They don't want to accept the fact that there is a creator who is going to hold them accountable for how they live their lives. I completely agree with that assessment. So what do you have planned for our next session? I want to start going over systematic theology, which is an examination of what the entire Bible teaches us about different topics. I look forward to starting on that. I also want to remind our listeners that they can send a question to us by sending an email to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will begin presenting systematic theology, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. 
to request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.